Welcome to the Psych 101 Podcast with me, your host, Luke Maxwell. This podcast is dedicated to helping you understand your mind and your mood so you can overcome any kind of challenge in your path. Today, I am so happy to be talking with Kevin Hines. If you have not seen his story yet, it is absolutely amazing. Kevin has a unique story and he gets into it in this episode of severe mental illness, attempted suicide, and miraculous survival, which turned into something that affects millions for the good every year. He has a new film out called The Ripple Effect, which I am really excited to see next week. I can't wait. Links to everything we've talked about will be in the show notes at the psych101podcast.com. Also, I just want to give a little information about the interview. There was a mishap with the audio. So you'll notice the audio isn't perfect. It's not absolutely great. But I managed to save it through an unbelievable amounts of persistence and time. I was able to save the audio. And because the interview was just, his story is just so amazing. So without further ado, let's talk with Kevin Hines. Yeah, so you have a lot of, you have a great story, you have a lot of wisdom that you can share, but why don't you tell us a bit about your background for those of you who haven't heard your story, how did you get into mental health advocacy? Well, I got into mental health advocacy after I had a very detrimental happening with my mental well-being. I... Mm-hmm. My, my biological, I'm adopted. My biological parents had mm-hmm. manic depression. Okay. That's what we call bipolar disorder today, mm-hmm. and that's what I was diagnosed with at 17. Okay. And my birth parents had no treatment to go to. They had no one to back them up in their in their well-being. They were poor. We were born. My, me and my brother were born into poverty. We had a rough beginning, a rough infancy. And in that rough infancy, my birth parents, sadly, um, were sub- had substance use disorder. They had drugs and alcohol, and they, they would eventually die of those diseases, but they died originally from that mental struggle that led to that coping strategy mm-hmm. of drugs and alcohol. And um, they would leave us unattended while they went to go you know, do score and sell drugs. And we lived in, in places uh, that were very unfitting for children or infants, um, places with concrete slab floors, that you paid for by the hour, and if you didn't, you were out. And I was taken away from that life. Meaning that one day, one basically seedy motel clerk, May Rock always called his most unseedy decision. He heard our screams and cries not be neglected anymore, and he called the police. Wow. Okay. Police came in, child protective services, swooped us up into foster care. We into foster care, we went, and my birth brother and I got bronchitis, and he died, the only full-blooded brother. They said that he had blonde, curly hair and looked just like me. I have red arm. And um, so the person closest to me disappeared. I was taken from a birth parent. I bounced around from home in foster care. New mom and dad in a couple weeks or days, no stability, developed severe detachment disorder, and chronic abandonment issues that would follow me Luke, for the rest of my life, and until until right now uh, and, and, and beyond. So 
so to say what led to the man's love story, so I ended up I ended up in the home of a family called the Mullers. Peter and Debbie Muller uh, were a transitional home for kids. Okay, that meant that well, Peter was in the army, often had new stations, and they would take in many kids at the same time, boys and girls, all ages, pandemonium. Uh, mm-hmm. But unlike, unlike my brother, I got lucky. You know, yeah. uh, he died, and I fell into the home of the Mullers, where it, a beautiful woman named Debbie Hines walked in their door one day. To my understanding, looking for a little girl, but the first thing she saw on the carpet of floor as a foster parent was me. <laughs> my birth name isn't Kevin Hines. That's my adopted name. My biological name is Giovanni Gabriel Prasad Perales. Oh, wow. And right. I, I always joke in my speeches <laughs> that somehow my brother's name was just Jordache. That's <laughs> Four names, one name, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so they used to call me Gio. And then mm. he was really going to come home with a little girl. But she saw me. And she said in her journal of those days that she used to write in about all her kids. That was the moment she fell in love. Now, Debbie and Pat Hines, right, my new mom and dad, they opted to take in three kids from three separate families into one melting pot of a family, a, a, a whole new world, right? Mm. We didn't look alike, right? <laughs> and white. My sister, Elizabeth, white. She can pass off as their natural born child. But me, mixed. Um, you can mm-hmm. think of me as everything but Russian. <laughs> Want to go with that? And, and uh, my brother black, my sister white, and mm-hmm. just frankly, I gotta be honest with you, people are very confused. Yeah. And people would look at us and be like, "How does that work?" I don't understand. And my mom had all kinds of jokes for when they would make comments. Triplets. To my mom, looking at all those kids, and they look completely baffled, and they say things to the effect of, "Now, how did all of that my mom would turn to them and say things like, oh, you know, different fathers, which is fantastic because it was true. Yes, yeah. So, grew up in the Heinz home. My mom and dad, the Heinz, my brother and sister from different families into one. We were one melting pot of a family and we were happy, Luke. Mm. We were filled with love, filled right. with joy. We had the most amazing childhood. But as yep. you know, that stopped yeah. short at 17. Mm-hmm. And everything came crashing down. And I say, Luke, that it was because of my brain. You know, if you yeah. think about it, the brain is the single most powerful organ you wield. Mm-hmm. It's mostly on automatic mode. Basically controls every action and inaction you take, every decision, every indecision. And, and so my brain was falling apart. My brain was, for lack of a better term, Luke, malfunctioning. And I was losing my mind and so uh, I know it's a long-winded story to get to how I became a mental advocate but I ended up at 17 on a stage at my high school performing in a show called How to Succeed in Business without really trying I was playing a character called Gatch if you don't know the story of How to Succeed in Business I don't Gatch is a blandering businessman he's a cheating businessman he's always cheating on his wife uh, with secretaries and the scene that I'm in right there is stage right, which is my left, and I'm playing the scene opposite one of the lead girls 
and and I'm and I'm in the in the show. Gash is um, to be frank in today's state of mind, he would be a, a harasser of women. Okay, mm-hmm. he would be un, un, unwanted, uninvited, inappropriate. Okay, and and in that show, they paint him as a real a real little jerk, which he was. Um, and I'm on that stage playing that character in the opening scene. I'm carrying the particular scene as one of the leads, and it hits me. I start to sweat. I start to shake. And I look out at the 1,200 people in that audience. There was not one seat open. And I believe that they were there to kill me. Wow. Extreme wow. paranoia mm-hmm. caused by psychosis yep. from bipolar disorder type one of psychotic features, which at the time I didn't know I had. Okay. Uh, mm. And, I mean, Luke, what the hell would you do if you thought 1,200 people would come and kill you? Yep. Run. Yep. Run. I ran off stage. I ran to the lobby where I met with my, my director from the play, met me there, John Fennell. Mm-hmm. And John Fennell was, by all accounts, uh, well, first of all, he was my hero in high school. He was the best teacher I ever had. He was, uh, the guy meant the world to me. He was my friend. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be with, be real with you right now. He would be the first person of six people in my life, 36 years, I moved to suicide. Wow. That's another left of wow. story. So uh, I'll skip that and go back to it. So, so John literally sits me down in the lobby of the theater Led in the theater on Field Avenue, San Francisco, at Reardon High School. Sits me down uh, in the theater treasurer's chair, and it was fitting because I was the theater treasurer. And I always say that that was probably a stupid idea because I had no conceptual math skills. But anyway, um, and he yelled, Kevin, can you please finish the performance? It's not even intermission yet. What are you mm-hmm. doing? I just babbled yep. mm-hmm. I really couldn't make out like three words in a row that made any sense mm-hmm. he didn't know what the hell to do he called my mom mom picked me up now she had seen me act erratically she had seen me un and unwell but to be really honest with you nobody knew it could be as serious as it would become Right? And so, mm-hmm. I end up, very soon thereafter, going to see a psychiatrist, talking to this doctor, and eventually this guy looks at me, who looked like a Poindexter kind of guy, you know, he was <laughs> like, he was, you, know, you know, I don't mean to put labels on people, but back in the day, you would have called him a nerd, and even today, that, that's a term that's different now, you yep. know what I mean? that's, yeah. that's not, that's not a... That's not an intro anymore. <laughs> Nerds and, and geeks are pretty cool people with mm-hmm. their, uh, their Spider-Man. I, I identify as one, so. <laughs> so did I. Just saying, like, to give someone a valuable picture of yep. Dr. Rich, yep. you would know that he had on, like, the, the river. <laughs> he had a sweater that was always too bright, and the guy would clean his pants at the cups, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was Dr. Rich. He was, a, he was a square. But anyway, um, he was a nice guy, and he was trying to help me, and I wasn't having it. I, I wasn't buying what he was selling. And one day I'm in that session, and he looks at me, and he says, Kevin, you have bipolar disorder. 
Monday through Monday. Mm-hmm. On September 25th of the year 2000, all of that stuff became too much to bear. The weight on my shoulders in place was crushing me. My knees were buckling, you know what I mean? Yep. Oh, I know exactly. Yes. I couldn't take it anymore, man. I couldn't take it anymore. And I sat at my desk. I wrote a note. You know that note? Yes. Very well. Yeah, man. I wrote that note. And I put it in my shoulder bag. I put my shoulder bag by the door. On, uh, on the next morning, at 6 a.m., I entered my father's room. I startled him awake. He awoke, looked at me, and said, Kevin, what's wrong? That was an opportunity, right? You know? Yep. Just tell him. No way. The voice mm-hmm. in my head was telling me at that very moment to be quiet and that I had to go. I said, Nothing, Dad. I just want to tell you that I love you. And, and in my mind, it was it was the last time I was going to say that to him. Mm-hmm. He would be the last person I saw that day in my mind. He said, Kevin, I love you too. But it takes in the morning. And I don't know if you want to go back to bed. He fell soundly asleep. Just about as fast as he had, he had awakened when I, when I bothered him. And uh, I rocked myself back and forth with tears. Begging myself to tell him the truth. But the voices were getting louder, louder, and louder, and I couldn't really hear anything else. Eventually, eventually he would take me to City College that day. Because he thought I had a math test. So I told him. Just to be clear. I hate math. Sorry, you couldn't pay me enough money to take math. Test. <laughs> um, plus, my math book is on my desk, and my book bag is by the door. Got in his car. He drove me to City College, thinking that I was going to take the bus home that night. I'd see him home at six. Me knowing full well. I was going to that bridge. My dad looked at me when he pulled over to City College campus and he said, uh, Kevin, I love you. Careful. It's something he said every day. I said, I love you too, Dad. I kissed him on the cheek and I stepped out of the car. A tear Pulled down my right cheek, off my chin, and it landed on my right lug's boot onto the little shoelace. I will never forget that moment, Luke, because the moment I said to myself, that's the very last time I would ever see anybody I love. The very last time they would ever see me. And that's when my mm-hmm. father was driving away. I wiped the water from my face, I walked on campus, I dropped all of my classes, except my English class. I made my way onto a train and then onto a bus. And I was sitting in the very back row, crying like a baby. 
I'll be wishing and praying that one person would see me and say, hey kid, are you okay? Hey brother, is something wrong? Can I help you? And I would have told that person everything and begged for their help. I couldn't tell my dad that morning. I couldn't. I just couldn't. The voices were too strong. But on that bus, the voices were strong too, but I desperately wanted someone to literally just just, just stop me. Give me a physically stop me, stop me. Ask me if I'm okay. And I just kept repeating in my head, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you, whoever you are, ask me, but I couldn't get I, I, the problem here was that I couldn't mm-hmm. say it out loud. Yes. The shame, the stigma, the yes. the pain, I couldn't say it out loud. And, and I couldn't tell my dad that morning because of the voices. But on this bus, on this bus, Luke, I desperately wanted someone to stop me. And I would have told them everything had they asked me something like those questions. And Luke, just so you know, this is very common, okay? Yep. People think yep. what's called the suicide pact. Mm-hmm. And it goes like this. If one person says or does this, I will die today. One person says or does this, I won't die today. And I think that mm-hmm. one of the best cases of that scenario comes from the book Why People Die by Suicide by Dr. Thomas Joyner, who's a personal friend of mine, a good man, and a great researcher and a great doctor who helps millions of people. Um, mm-hmm. And and he wrote that book Why People Die by Suicide. In the book, a story is chronicled in the book about a man who went to Golden Gate Britain and wrote in his note, if one person smiles at me today, I won't jump. And I always say in my speeches, may he rest in peace. And I say that man, in his mind, died for the lack of a smile. I mm-hmm. almost died for the lack of someone saying, are you okay? So I'm on that bridge. I'm walking back and forth across that walkway for 40 minutes crying like a baby. And, uh, and a woman, a, a tourist stops me and says, excuse me, will you take my picture? that accent and I really thought like oh come on lady terrible timing but I I took a picture five times I leaped over that rail she walked away and I said to myself nobody cares the furthest thing from the actual truth everybody and their mama cared Luke yep yep and I say meaning every member of my family every one of my friends and I always say my acquaintances would have been there to rip me from that rail to safety because we cared. Well, mm-hmm. I felt that way. I didn't realize she might have been trying to reach me. I didn't see it. She walked away and I, the voice in my head told me what I had to do. At a death from life, I can't explain to me without piercing those ears and those headphones of yours. And I did. I left over the rail. Catapulted myself into free fall. And the millisecond that I did that, the second that my hands left the rail and my legs cleared it, I had an instant regret for my action. And the 110% recognition that you couldn't pay to see in my life, it was too late. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand. You don't already. Over 2,000 people, over 2,000 people made that mistake. Yep. And 99% of the people who have attempted there are no longer because they're gone forever. It was it was for mm-hmm. all those people too late. In in 80 years of that 
red piece of iron being opened, the Golden Gate Bridge. In 80 years, over 2,000 died, 99% gone. And 1% that's exactly 36 people in 80 years. Mm-hmm. And of those 36 people that survived, on that day, I would become 26 of 36 people to survive that fall. Now, of the 36 people to survive that fall, I would become one of five to get the privilege and ability to regain full physical mobility. Wow. Five of us wow. get to walk this earth the rest of things that happened before I get to how I got into the mental health world. In, in the water, the whale to stay afloat, trying to grasp for air, trying to stay above water, not doing a very good job, kept going down. I come back up one more time, having a violent asthma attack. I am having a really hard time. I have broken my back in three places, shattering three vertebrae, discharged my glass. I have, I have somehow affected my ankle, my right ankle was uh, not, not fractured, but certainly was sprained at the, very, at the very least, if not more. And, and uh, I, uh, uh, my right arm is branched moving in the past year, caused epic amounts of pain. I was in excruciating pain all throughout my body. Uh, I couldn't feel my legs. I'm using my arms to surface only my arms. To, to swim 70 feet to the surface. Now there I am above water, thinking I'm going to die. Thinking no one is going to save me. This is it. That's when, that's when something began circling me. Every large and slamming alive, which would turn out, I thought it was a shark. I mentioned that on a TV show once, a year later, and people wrote into the show, one man's letter stuck out of all the rest. He said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet from you when you jumped. Until this day, watching this show, no one would ever tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until now. By the way, Kevin, there was no shark like you mentioned on the TV show you thought there was. But there was a sea lion. And the people above, looking down, believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. Wow. I don't know what you would call that, Luke, but I'd call that a miracle. I'd call call that a miracle as well. You look here on my Hope Help Field shirt. Mm-hmm. Eli is right at the bottom. I, I, I call him Herbert because he kept me above water and I was freaking out thinking he was going to bite me in any minute. Shark. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn until later. Anyway, I became a mental health advocate move because I fought to live in the hospital. And in the psych ward after the physical hospital, after going from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane to a back brace to a cane to a psych ward. Seven psych ward stays in 11 years for suicidal crisis. In that first psych ward stay, a Franciscan friar by the name of Brother George Cherry came to see me. And he looks at me with his black robe and his white robe and his rosary. And he says, hey, kid, what are you in for? And I said, I'm the bridge. And he said, oh, yeah, and I'm the Pope. And I said, no, brother, that's what He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. Let's pray. And he comes over. And he goes, kid, when you get better, you want to talk about this? And I said, about what to who? what do you huh. mean? I got out of the hospital. He would say that every single day. When you get better, you better talk about this. Well, I go to church with my dad, 
I'm mm-hmm. driving out of the hospital with my cane and my brow crease, hobbling around everywhere. The priest comes out, who confirmed he's a kid. He says, Monsignor Herman, he says, Kevin, how would you like to come and talk to our freshman, our, our seventh and eighth grade class on Good Friday about your experience? I said, Father, I don't have a speech and I wouldn't know what to say. And that's when my 6'1 father, and I'm not, pushed me forward and said, he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. I didn't want to tell a soul. I was thoroughly ashamed. Mm-hmm. But when I wrote that speech and read it from the page, crying and shaking, so many kids wrote me back from that audience. Mm-hmm. They were suicidal. And because they were minors and their letters were screened, they were given the help they needed. And they're alive today. I mm-hmm. saw that happen. My dad read all the 120 letters I received from those kids. And he said to me one day, Kevin, we have to do this. Talk. However, wherever and whenever possible. And we never stopped. And now we got a film called Suicide the Ripple Effect. Yes, yes. It is a film about the transformative power of stories and hope. Storytelling mm-hmm. can save lives if you're doing it properly. Yes. On that, we're going to do this story right here. We have to talk about how I found recovery every day. I eat healthily. Yes. I educate yep. myself with my diagnosis so I know how to fight it with every tool I can, every formidable, reputable, proven form of therapy. I educate myself as to my diagnosis, reading everything I can about this bipolar disorder and every new thing that comes out so I can defeat it. I, I eat healthy, educate myself, exercise every day without fail because I need to feel good for my brain and, and, and 23 minutes of rigorous exercise leads to 12 hours yep. of mood and you're not exercising, get it done. Yes. Coping strategies like hobbies and, and habits that are positive can help you maintain a good, healthy mental health lifestyle, okay? I don't, it doesn't matter if you have a mental illness or not. Everybody and their and their friends had issues. Yes. Everybody Every, yep, everyone. Every human being has to take care of their mental health. Yes. So I put in positive practices every single day to stabilize my brain well-being, including a good sleep pattern, including all these other things, coping strategies. And I do take medication every day. It helps me. It doesn't help everybody. Yeah. That's perfect. And I go to therapy. Teletherapy now, but I do it regularly. And I tell my truth, and I, I utilize tools to achieve realistic, real plausible, short-term goals, so I feel like I've accomplished life skill success. So mm-hmm. you can take these tools and change your life, whether you're suffering mentally or that you're just stressed out. And I have them on my website, kevinhindstory.com, under the multimedia page, under the resources section, the art of wellness is what it's called. It's free. It's for everyone. Take it. It's being used all over the world in every level of clinician. It's being used in childhood adult psychiatrists. It's being used in military bases and the law enforcement offices. It's being used by general people around the world, including the FBI, because people need to know that there is a way to fight mental illness. Yes. Bipolar disorder, and it is with routine and regimen. Yes. So, can I share that with you. I want your audience to go see the film Suicide Ripple Effect, mm-hmm. and if they so desire, go to suicidetheripple right now 
and register to host your own screenings around this country or around the world because you can. And it is a beautiful book about how to help people find Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. That I mean, first of all, I am so glad you're here today. As one suicide survivor to another, I know the mindset, what that's like to go through those steps to come to that conclusion. And that just that 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 feeling that you can't you can almost not describe after and you realize you're alive and you don't know what's going on, how to react. And I'm so glad you're here today. And I wanted to go to that smile. I just wanted to focus on that for a little bit because I love um, people. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know I'm all about small changes that bring about a big action. And smiling is one of them. I remember I heard that story about the man who jumped on the Golden State Bridge um, who wrote in his journal, if someone smiled at me, I wouldn't jump. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, oh my gosh. I could, it's something that small could make a difference. And as I started talking with more and more teens who are depressed and I realized that, wow, I could say something, I could smile and that dramatically changes something about them. It's just the right thing at the right time. Uh, I've made a point to smile like as much as possible when I'm out and about, when I'm talking to people, especially when I'm on college campus because you know that place is, <laughs> you need a lot of smiles on a college campus. Um, <laughs> hey, Luke, you know what I say? Just because someone smile at you, it doesn't mean they're hitting on you. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, that's true. That's one thing that I'm always like careful about. Like, okay, let's like make sure we're not too enthusiastic. We need a moderate level. <laughs> um, give, give somebody a hug who looks mm-hmm. like they're having a hard time, right? You know, mm-hmm. Go up to somebody who is crying their eyes out and say, hey, you know, you're breaking my heart, you know, crying so much, what's going on, you know? And they might look mm-hmm. at you and go, well, my heart was broken today and I'm in a lot of pain. And then you go, well, you know what? I got your back and you put your arm around it and you say, it'll get better. A, a, a friend of mine in the crisis text line mm-hmm. does that with her everyday activities. She sees someone in that kind of pain and that's the kind of reaction she puts forth. A, a positive note to the world that you don't have to be the person's friend, loved one, uh, brother, sister, you can see that person on the bench in front of your house and you have the ability to walk up to them and say, hey, can I help you? Yes. Yes. We're all hu- mm-hmm. Yeah, we're exactly. Yeah, we're all humans. We're all in this together. <laughs> if we could be compassionate to every person we see in front of us, and like I said in the Logan Paul video, mm-hmm. if you don't see beauty in the next person you meet, you are not looking hard enough. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's so good to hear someone else say that as well. I know that I'm not I'm not just here like spouting things. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you've been doing uh, so much. And you know, honestly, when I saw what you're doing, I'm like, I need to up my game. I need to do more. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> I, I'm... Oh, I make I make the time. Uh, lots of work, but I love I love what I do. People say like, "Oh, you work too much." I'm like, "No, but I love it. It's not work for me. I love filming videos. I love you know even editing them. You know, spending the hours it takes doing that. I know that there's going to be a good result. There's going to be a good result out of this. It's going to impact people. So exactly. 
Exactly. And I have fun doing it too. You'll see me dancing over there, some music, taking a break, but uh, usually off camera. Um, but yeah, so you've been doing so much. So all the links to everything you've talked about will be in the show notes at psych101podcast.com. We'll have a link to your movie, um, the, the, the book that you were talking about, which I still need to pick up. Thank you for reminding me about that. Your website, social media, all of that will be there. Um, so it'll be easy for people to find you. Um, but I just, I wanted to, I want to leave with, with something, uh, you gave us a ton of actionable advice, but, um, I love the going off with the smile. Is there something else that you've incorporated into your daily life? Um, something small, like something that people just wouldn't really think about that we can build up as a habit that can positively affect us and the people around us. Yes. So much gratitude. And here's why I have so much gratitude. Mm -hmm. I was almost wiped from this earth. I almost didn't get a second chance. I almost died in the hospital. Yet here I sit talking to you. Yes. I'm blessed to be given the opportunity to tell my story on your platform because you're changing lives too, buddy. Thank so you. I am grateful for every millisecond I get to walk this earth and every person I get to meet. And if you find me in a bad mm -hmm. mood one day, you just Yes. That is that is perfect. And I, I was actually just reading the study that was done on success. Like success um in general, like studies, business, like various forms of success. And gratitude was one of the biggest factors in success. Gratitude and pride and pride in what you're doing and support from the people around you were these three factors that mattered in success, no matter what you define as success. Yeah. Yep. If you are ungrateful for the things around you because you've been given a hard life, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a good life. Yes. A tough life and a rough life and a, and a difficult life. And people can say, oh, Kevin, you must be nice living the dream. No, man. <laughs> Yep. Yes. 
Yes. And you are a great example of taking a bad situation and turning it into something good. That's why my tagline is be unashamed. Because being unashamed to me is taking that bad experience, whatever bad experience you have. I, I joke about something like as small as burning your mouth on coffee every day. Like that's a bad experience. Or you could say like something about surviving a suicide attempt, a serious mental illness. Taking that bad experience, not just recognizing it, not just overcoming it, but also taking the next step and being unashamed about it by letting that experience, accepting it and letting it influence your actions in your life to help yourself and other people. This reminded me of something. When, when uh, I was watching this, this silly video of celebrities tripping and falling <laughs> over, over lips in the street, and they were so upset with how they looked in front of the camera that you could tell them they were visibly embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I take that in a different way. I trip all the time. I'm a clumsy guy. <laughs> so I, I, I trip on lips in the street all the time. I look like a goofball. I'm going to fall over myself, but I just start to dance. Yep. <laughs> Yep, turn turn a fall into a dance. I believe that's a quote from somewhere. <laughs> yep. And, and, and one, one of my friends, actually my brother, said it best. And he's probably not the first person to say it. But he said, Kevin, it's not about what happens to you. Mm -hmm. It's about how you react. Exactly. To exactly. That's it. You get angry or you can do good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, you can't control like if you're if you're genetically predisposed to mental illness, you can't change that. It, but matter. Yep. What what matters? What you can change is your future. So thank you, Kevin. Um, you've given us a great amount of time. I appreciate you coming, sharing your story, sharing your advice, and just your inspiration and your wisdom that uh, you've given us. You can find all the links we talked about, everything um, at the Psych One Hundred and One Podcast dot com. Um, ever uh, information will be there. Um, some everything. We'll, we'll see when it gets there. But um, thank you, Kevin. Um, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, week, and hope everything continues to go well with you, especially with uh, the ripple effect. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing that get big because it's such a good way to tell your story and to share hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And thank you for that information as well. That will be up in the show notes as well. You've been listening to the Psych 101 podcast with me, your host, Luke Maxwell, and my guest, Kevin Hines. Again, you can find all the info on the show notes. And as always, be ashamed and stay ashamed.